Well, I would encourage you to have the letter of 2 John open in front of you as we look at these opening six verses this morning where John impresses upon us two inseparables, truth and love. It's been quite interesting, hasn't it, in recent months, uh, listening to the many voices in Westminster demanding honesty and integrity, uh, railing against those in whom it's clearly lacking, uh, whilst we're not sure how much we can believe what any of them say at any given time. Uh, being truthful seems to be an increasingly rare commodity these days, even though everyone does understand the need for it, because they're all crying out for it. But what is also being sidelined very much is the notion that there is such a thing as objective truth. And especially when it comes to matters such as morality and ethics and religious belief, Indeed, of course, some things like this, most things like this, have become a complete free-for-all in the eyes of most people, certainly in the last few decades, and in a way and a magnitude that hasn't been seen for a very long time. Uh, more recently, as you're only too aware, uh, this has produced the most ridiculous and nonsensical claims and assertions especially regarding things such as gender, so that we now have politicians being challenged to let the public know how they would define a woman. Uh, most of them, most of them surely realise just how ridiculous this has become, mustn't they? I, I find myself asking, surely they realise how ridiculous this is. Do they really know how silly this is? They must know. Of course they know. They just don't have the backbone to say it. But who 30 years ago would have imagined that it could have been such a difficult question to answer? Who'd have imagined you needed to ask the question? That's where it's, that's where it's gone. But of course, more than being ridiculous, more than being nonsensical, which these things are, they are also incredibly sinful. Because they are a complete rejection of what God has created, of what God has established, of what God has declared to be the truth, and of those things in which we have been instructed by him in his word. You'll see that in the first four verses of 2 John, the word truth appears five times. So it seems to be rather significant, and indeed it's going to be pivotal in all that John has to say. And it's more relevant than ever in our contemporary situation today. Now, when we speak of truth, being a truthful person and not being deceitful, well, that obviously is of huge importance. But there's much more than that being urged upon us here. This is not just about being truthful. Actually, in many ways, this isn't about being truthful at all. 
Not that being truthful is not important, but that's not what John has in mind here. That's not what he has in view. Truth is more than not telling lies. This truth that John refers to, this is fixed, eternal, unchanging realities which have their origin in God, and even more than that, they relate to God himself. Because he is the eternal, unchanging, sovereign Lord of all. That's what is being referred to here when John speaks of truth. But before I take that any further, uh, let's just allow ourselves to be led by the text of this letter. Now, you might notice that as we read through the letter from start to finish, the author isn't actually named unlike the letters written by Paul, in which he always identifies himself at the start. So how do we know it was written by John? And who is this John? Well, this John was a fisherman who was called by Jesus to be one of his apostles, along with his brother James and the other ten. This John and James... They were the sons of Zebedee, and these are the two brothers who earned themselves the nickname Sons of Thunder. They were two very high-spirited young men. John was one of the disciples closest to Jesus. It was to John that Jesus committed the care of Mary as Jesus hung from the cross. It was John who beat Peter to the tomb to see if the report of Christ's resurrection was true. He was an apostle and an elder of the church in Jerusalem who, along with Peter, features very prominently in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. This is the same John who wrote the gospel record <clears throat> that bears his name. And the gospel, which in contrast to the others, contains so much theological understanding about the person and work of Christ and of Christ's relationship to his Father and to the Holy Spirit in a way that the other three don't. And right towards the end of the New Testament, we meet up again with John in his old age as he writes these three letters and then he finally concludes the canon of Scripture with the revelation that he receives from Christ. It's probably at least the year AD 90. And John will at least be in his late 70s or in his 80s, maybe even in his early 90s. It's widely accepted that by this time, he was the last surviving apostle, perhaps by as many as 20 years not so many eyewitnesses of Christ's life and ministry around now, but John is still. There'll be others as well, but John is the last of the apostles. And a number of the early church fathers who we read, out, read of in the second century, perhaps the most notable one being Polycarp, they knew John in his old age when they were still relatively young men. And it's largely due to their acceptance of his authorship of this letter that we have the confidence to say that it was written by John. 
although there have always been some who offer other names. And you'll see that John describes himself simply as the elder. The elder. He is literally an elderly believer. By this time now, his role as an apostle is almost concluded. One of the roles that the apostle have is to bring direct revelation from God, and that will, that will conclude with the revelation that he has from Christ, which ends our, our New Testament scriptures. And the times of the apostles will be over then. But he's an elderly believer, filled with a godly and Christ-like compassion and concern for other believers. And he writes this letter. And he writes it to the elect lady. Now, there's a lot of debate as to whether this was indeed a lady with children or whether it's kind of a code word for a church and its members. The majority view seems to be that it's a code word for a church and its members. Interestingly, uh, I listened to one very notable Reformed Baptist pastor who many, many years ago believed this letter was written to a lady and her children. And quite a few years later, when he preached on it again, said it's written to a church <laughs> and its members. So he's obviously changed his view during that time. Well, the debate still continues. But actually, the lessons that are contained here are exactly the same, regardless of which it actually is. That this lady remains unnamed, many believe signifies the very severe opposition that Christians were experiencing at the time. So John doesn't wish, wish to actually identify them in order to give them a degree of protection. So this short letter, 2 and 3 John, the two shortest books in the Bible, uh, this is our passage for our study today. And this, mo this morning we'll take it as far as verse 6. And I want to concentrate initially on the first three verses under this heading, the centrality of truth. The centrality of truth. I love in the truth. The, and all those who've known the truth because of the truth. In truth and love. And notice how John twice refers to the truth. The truth. The end of verse 1, the beginning of verse 2. The truth. What does he have in view here? when he talks about truth and especially the truth? Well, firstly, we must believe that the Bible is the truth. Not only that it contains truth, that is far too loose a way to speak of the Bible, but that it is in every part truth because it is God's word and it is God's truth. In John 17, as Jesus prays to his Father, he says, your word is truth. He doesn't say some of it's the truth. He doesn't say the truth is contained somewhere in it. Your word in its entirety is truth. And so we make that our starting point because the Bible is not just our primary source of truth. It is our, it is our only source of reference. 
that we can really rely upon. Now, there are other sources which point us in the right direction. Creation points us to the existence of a creator, but only in a limited way. Our conscience points us to one greater than ourselves, to whom we are accountable, but it only does that in a limited way. The Bible emphatically confirms all of those things and spells out these realities for us and so much more. All that God has revealed about himself and about mankind. The truth about his own being, that he is unique, that he is self-existing, self-sustaining, eternal, holy, almighty, sovereign, all-wise, all-loving, and that he is one God, yet he exists in three persons, that each of those persons is fully God, and yet he he is just one God. The truth of his eternal decree and purposes. The truth about his works as the creator, the sustainer, the origin of all things. The truth about who man is, who we are, where we came from, why we're here. The truth about our perfect beginning and our fall from perfection into sin. And our now being the, the object of God's anger and condemnation and of future judgment if we remain in our sin. The truth about our need of salvation, but of God's compassion and mercy and grace in sending Jesus into this world to be our only Saviour and Redeemer. The one who made full atonement for all of our sins on the cross. And everything else that falls under the compass of divine truth. Truth. The truth. This truth is the one great essential priority for the church Who, says Paul, writing to Timothy, the church is herself the pillar and the ground of the truth. And as you know, in in Paul's letters to Timothy, he's constantly referring Timothy back to the word. Preach the word. It's the only thing you have to do, Timothy. Preach the word. Let the word do its work in people's lives. So we are those to whom God's truth has been entrusted. We are those through whom God's truth is to be made known to this and to future generations, just as it was all those thousands of years ago in King David's day, as he wrote in Psalm 145. God is the God of truth. Christ is the truth and is full of truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. We are saved and sanctified by the truth. We're judged by the truth. We're set free by the truth. We worship in truth. We're to speak the truth. And so on, and so on, and so on. And as I've said, this is more than just truthfulness. This truth relates to all of these realities which the Bible Bible reveals to us regarding God, what He requires of us, how He created us to live and behave and to know Him and love Him. What are the consequences of our sinfulness? What God has purposed to do through His Son, the Lord Jesus, in order to save us? How that salvation should work itself out now and be evident in us. All of the doctrine that supports all of that, as we've seen, for example, in our studies in Romans. The truth. All of that is this truth. And it is all of that which this sinful world turns its back on 
and rejects. So of sinful men and women, we read things like this in the Bible. Jeremiah 9, they're skilled at teaching their tongues to lie. Hosea 4, there is no truth in them. Isaiah 59, they do not plead for truth. You think lack of truth is a recent problem? 1 Timothy 6, they're destitute of truth. 2 Timothy 3, they resist the truth. 2 Timothy 4, they turn their ears from the truth. Romans 1, 25, they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. This is the nature of the sinful heart in every single person. We, in contrast now, as the elect of God, chosen in Him, the elect ones, verse 1, we are to be people of this truth. There was a pastor who used to run a study class and he used to begin it by putting down in front of all of his uh, students a big jar of jelly beans. And he would ask the students to guess how many jelly beans were in the jar. And he'd write down all their guesses. Then he would ask each of them to shout out the name of their favourite song. And he wrote down all of their answers. And once he completed those two lists... First of all, he would reveal the number of beans in the jar and find out who was the closest. And then he turned to the list of songs that they'd all shouted out. And he'd ask this question, which of these is the closest to being correct? And they'd all look rather befuddled. What do you mean, which is the correct song? That's all down to our own personal preference. My favourite song doesn't have to be your favourite song. And you can't tell me that your favourite song has to be my favourite song. There is no right answer. I decide that for myself. And then the pastor would ask, when you decide what to believe in terms of your faith, is it more like knowing how many beans are in the jar? Or is it more like choosing your favourite song? Because you see, the world wants to say that truth, truth is just like choosing your favourite song. Each to his own. It's a matter of personal choice and preference. But we are talking about truth that is like the number of jelly beans in the jar. Predetermined, unchanging, fixed, and with only one correct answer. That's the truth we're dealing with. So here's a question for you. Where do you stand when it comes to where do you stand where it comes to this truth? Where do you stand with this truth? Because there is only one place where a true Christian can be. But number two is also very, very important. And number two is this. This truth is always accompanied by love. 
always. Verse 1, whom I love in truth. Verse 3, in truth and love. Verse 5, despite the, the, the emphasis on truth, you must love one another. Verse 6, this is love, that we walk according to God's commandments, which is to walk in his truth. This truth has God at its very core. Yes, but God is love. And it's this John in his gospel who describes Jesus as being full of grace and truth. We've been seeing in Matthew, haven't we, just how much compassion is in the heart of Christ. This truth is embedded in and has its origin in and issues from the one who is love. Much of this truth can only be explained by the fact that God is love. Much of this truth only makes sense if we know that God is love. This truth can only be known and understood because of God's love towards us in Christ. And it's in knowing and experiencing his love that you are brought into the reality of this truth. I heard John Stott being quoted on this subject and he said this, love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth and truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. Well, I think that's a really helpful way to think of things. And so you see in verse 3, John speaks of the grace and mercy and peace which every Christian knows and receives and is assured of from God and that is the entrance into this truth and love. So John explains that the fellowship and the unity that we enjoy as Christians always has, always must have this twofold dimension, truth and love. God's love for his people, John's love for the Lord's people, has its foundation in this truth. It's because of this truth that he has this love for them, as do all others, he says, who've known the truth. It's because they are of this same truth that they share this bond of love. And the love that they share is a godly, pure, righteous love which is fashioned and, de and defined by this truth. The two are inseparable. This love of which God sp John speaks would not, could not exist if it were, if it were not for this truth. Entering into a genuine experience of this truth produces this love. So if we ask ourselves this question, what's the main thing that unites Christians? How would you answer that question? What is the main thing that unites Christians? Or someone might say, well, the obvious answer is Christ. Well, yes, but... There are those who preach a false Christ. So what then? 
Some might say, well, surely it's the gospel. Well, yes, but there are those who preach a false gospel. So what do we do then? You have to be more specific than that. Who is it that John associates himself with in verse 1? As an apostle, as one who is writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. He associates himself with those who have known the truth and everything that that embraces. It's truth, the truth, that is the uniting factor amongst Christians. Love is not the reason for our unity. Love is not the cause of our unity. Our unity is our agreement in the truth. But love, of course, must have its place. Love is how that unity is to be expressed. Love is our natural response to others who know this truth. But it's agreement in the truth that is the basis of our unity. But if it's genuine, it must also be overflowing with love. John in verse 5 insists, as he does even more forcibly in his first letter, that love is not optional. One of the evidences that we ourselves are people of truth is that we love all others who are of the truth and that the truth that we share is the catalyst for this love. So one who claims to be of this truth but does not have this love, mm, says John, I don't know. Someone who's all about love but has no care for this truth, that's just not adding up either. These two inseparables, truth and love, in the church and in the life of every Christian. And thirdly, John impresses upon us, this truth is to be known. Those who've known the truth, verse 1. John in his gospel, chapter 8, you shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. The truth about Christ. But it has to be all of the truth about all of Christ. Otherwise, it's not the gospel. 1 Timothy 2, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and... Now, I know loads of Christians who just put a full stop after the word saved. God desires all men to be saved, full stop. That's enough for me, thank you. Wasn't enough for Paul when he wrote to Timothy. God desires all men to be saved and, and what? To come to the knowledge of the truth. Those two things go together. 2 Timothy 2. A servant of the Lord mustn't quarrel, but be gentle, able to teach, patient, in humili hum humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. This truth is something to be known. It's something to be convinced of. It's something to be assured of. God brings us this truth by his word, which is the truth. He brings us the truth by his spirit, who is the spirit of truth. 
John refers to the Holy Spirit three times in his Gospel as the Spirit of Truth, once in each of the chapters, 14, 15 and 16. The Christian faith is based upon eternal realities in terms of what is true, as God has established those truths spiritually and morally. Truth that the world is abandoning at an alarming rate. And this truth is based upon real events, which are the works of God's hands. We read about that in Psalm 145. This isn't something new, folks. This has always been the way for the Lord's people. The works of God's hands. And of course, especially those things which happened in the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And these things are to be known and loved and rejoiced over. These are the things which are to be the the subject of our praise and worship. We love and worship God and we give him thanks and praise because this is true and this is true and this and this and this. It's truth that, that is the source of our worship and praise. Not about how we feel. It's about what is true. The world can sing all day about how it feels. Can't sing about truth like you can as a believer. It knows nothing of it. It's about truth. Now this truth is about facts and principles in eternal spiritual and moral realities, but this truth is so deep and so vast and so high, it's about even more than that. This truth is also a person who is himself the truth, and you must know him, Christ Jesus. It's not just knowing about Jesus, it's about knowing Jesus a relationship with him. Do you know this truth? Do you know this Jesus for yourself? That's what John is talking about here. To know Christ is to have sins forgiven and to have life eternal. Do you have that? And then fourthly, John says, this truth abides in the believer and will be with us forever. Now, you won't hear a message like that anywhere else. This truth abides in the believer and will be with you forever. It's there in verse 2. This truth is not something which remains remote or distant. This truth is not just some fanciful theory. This truth is not just some frame of mind you've got to try and get yourself into. This truth is not just a set of principles that you have to try and follow, which generally will help your life to work out reasonably well. This truth comes to us not merely by the means of the intellect, in fact, not even principally by the means of the intellect, although it does require that we have believing and understanding minds, but actually even the understanding minds that we have are the result of our being saved. This truth comes to us by means of our direct relationship with God through the indwelling of Christ by His Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, as well as being called the Spirit of Truth, is called the Spirit of Christ. He comes to us. He makes his home within us. He's made his home in you. He's living and abiding in you right now. This God of truth, this Christ of truth, this spirit of truth 
He's in you, living. He's made his home within you. And he leads you continually into the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the Spirit of Christ. So this truth, in the first place, is about a person who comes and indwells all who receive him through faith, by grace, leading you to repentance. And so it's not surprising, is it, that because we're indwelt, indwelt by Christ, that John's emphasis is on both truth and love. If you're indwelt by Christ, how can you not have any experience of his love? And how can that love not have had its outworking in you? That's why these two things are inseparable. They are inseparable in Christ. He is the ultimate example of truth and love. Everything about him from beginning to end. The Bible speaks of the law of God being written upon our hearts. It changes the believer. This truth converts the soul. And it, and it remains to continue its work. And once the work's done, it's forever. Do you have this assurance yourself this morning? That this truth is within you and that it's yours forever. This is the gospel. And when this truth indwells you, the next unavoidable consequence is that you'll walk in truth. And this is the final point. Christians are to walk in truth. Now the elect lady, whether literal or symbolic of a church, has children, verse 4 whether they're literal children or whether they are symbolic of church members. But the principle's the same. Uh, and what does John say? I rejoice greatly, verse 4, that I have found some of your children walking in truth. I found some of your children walking in truth. Now either he knows quite a lot of them, but only some of them are walking in truth, but he's only met some of them, and those he's met are all walking in truth. I'm not quite sure which it is. But the issue is, they are walking in truth, and you and I are supposed to be walking in truth. That's the point. Perhaps there are some who are not walking as they should be. Maybe there are some here, and you're a Christian, but you're not walking as you should be. But we are commanded to walk in truth. And verse 6 tells us that the evidence and the proof of God's love being in us is that we walk according to his commandments. We walk according to his truth. So you can't be someone who goes on and on about the truth but does not have this love. You cannot be someone who goes on and on about love but completely ignores this truth and has no time for it. John says, no, you just can't think that way as a Christian. You can't separate these two things in your thinking or in your living or in your testimony, in your witness. But we're to walk in truth. This is a truth that changes lives. It governs lives. It reshapes lives. It reshapes character. It reshapes behavior. But it isn't merely academic and theoretical. It changes us on the inside because the truth indwells us. It renews our hearts and our minds. It's renewed your heart and your mind if you're a Christian and you're to live it out, which is what this walking is all about. It's how you live. It's the Christian that people see in you every single day. 
It's the Christian that people see in you when you go to work tomorrow or when you return to school or college in September. It's the Christian that people see in you if you live at home with those who are not saved. It's the Christian that people will see in you when, you, when you're with your unsaved neighbours or when you go down to the shops or whatever it is that you're doing. Everything about your life, your behaviour, is this walk in truth. And notice that such walking, to live your life in a certain way, is commanded by God. This is the living that produces obedience. It's a living that produces holiness and worship and praise. It's a truth that fills us with love and grace and produces the fruit of that indwelling spirit. It transforms lives so that in increasing measure, our lives reflect the source and the origin of this truth, which of course is God himself through Christ. Just have verses 5 and 6 open in front of you there, and we can ask various questions of those verses. Can a Christian walk in this truth and not have love? The answer has to be no, it's impossible. Can a Christian walk in this truth and be disobedient? No, it's impossible. Can a Christian be filled with God's love and walk in disobedience? No, that's impossible. Can a Christian be filled with God's love and be ignorant of the truth? No, that's impossible too. Can a Christian be filled with God's love and disregard the truth? No, that can't be done either. You can ask these questions all different ways around and you always come up with the same answer. So we're being urged here in these opening six verses of this simple letter to heed the words of this most eminent of believers, John, the elder, the apostle. This is a man who walked this earth with your Saviour. This is the man who was known as the disciple Jesus loved. Now, did Jesus not love all of his disciples? Of course he did. But this one was known as the disciple Jesus loved. There was a special relationship that he enjoyed. And in his final years, do you know what John wants more than anything else? He wants every single Christian to be a disciple who Jesus loves. He really does. That's his heart for you in this letter. That you would be nothing less than a disciple who Jesus loves. What do you need to be that? You need this truth. And you need this love. Do you want to be that? Make it your determined aim to be a man or woman of truth, to be indwelt by truth, together to be united in the truth, to be those who love in truth, to be those who are seen walking in truth. And be under no illusion This 
will put you seriously at odds with the world. Because with a passion, the world hates this truth. With a passion, the world hates this truth. And they will hate you. Which is why there is so much instruction in the New Testament about the persecution you can expect to receive if you live like this. The world has exchanged this truth for Satan's lies and deceit, and we see in increasing depths the depravity and rebellion of that all around us. Sometimes it might even put you at odds with other Christians and other churches. Every Sunday, we drive past St. Nicholas Church down at the pier head, flying the rainbow flag of pride. Sorry, St. Nicholas Church, I don't think so. We have no fellowship with them. None. None. But you can be certain that Christ longs for his church to have these fundamental distinctives and this fundamental passion to be men and women of truth, who know the truth, who love in truth, who are indwelt by truth, and who walk in truth, all of which is to be like Christ.